Resilience is a quality often attributed to Filipinos who tend to just smile through the hardships of life and continue working hard in hopes of someday overcoming poverty. This resilience was what made Filipino laborers a favorite among California farm operators in the early 1900s. But these Filipinos would eventually become the target of violent assaults by local Californians opposed to immigration. And one such assault would lead to hundreds of Filipinos being injured and one in particular being fatally wounded. You're listening to Stories After Dark, a Philippine true crime and mystery podcast powered by Anchor and released exclusively on Spotify with new episodes out every Friday. This is the story of the Watsonville riots which resulted in the untimely death of 22-year-old Filipino Fermin Tobera. Listener discretion is advised due to the graphic nature of this story. The first recorded presence of Filipinos in the United States dates back more than four centuries ago to 1587, with the first permanent Filipino settlement in 1763 in what is now the state of Louisiana. The migration of Filipinos to the U.S. in large numbers, however, only happened over a century ago in 1903 when the Philippines was already an American overseas territory. Filipinos were not considered aliens but rather U.S. nationals exempt from the immigration laws of the time. Thousands of them came to the U.S. during the early American period of the Philippines and many of them settled in the states of Hawaii and California. In this first wave of Filipino immigrants, men outnumbered women by a ratio of about 15 to 1. These men became known as the Manong generation of immigrants, Manong being the Ilocano word for elder brother, as they were mostly young and single men who were the first Filipinos to embark on this journey and therefore served as role models for those who will follow their footsteps. Some of these Manongs ended up getting employed in factories, but many others worked in the service and domestic industry during the agricultural off-season. They worked on farms when the growing season began, harvesting potatoes, lettuce, and other vegetables and fruits. The agricultural work was usually very physically demanding, and as employers assumed Filipinos were unfamiliar with their rights, the Manongs were paid the lowest wages among all ethnic laborers. Due to their innate resilience though, they didn't complain and they became the preferred recruits of farm operators, particularly in California's Santa Clara and San Joaquin Valleys. White working class men soon began to feel they were being robbed of job opportunities even though many of them actually refused to do the work for which Filipinos were being hired. As resentful as these white men were, however, there was no denying how vital the Filipinos were in California's growing agricultural industry. The Manongs who worked on farms usually stayed in bunkhouses at labor camps specially set up by their employers. They worked hard in the fields each day, and some of their wages they would send back to their families in the Philippines, while the rest was for their living expenses and nights out on the town where they could socialize with women. Due to the gender bias in the immigration policy and hiring practices, there continued to be a low ratio of Filipino women to Filipino men. It was difficult then for many of the Manongs to find partners and start families, so they sought the companionship of women outside their own ethnic community. With their hard-earned dollars, they would go downtown for a haircut, they would dress up in tuxedos or suits and gather in Chinatown or any of the few other neighborhoods they were only allowed in. 
They went to taxi dance halls, a popular hangout spot for Filipino bachelors, and they paid the young women working there 10 cents for every dance. They dined at restaurants, played in pool rooms and gambling resorts, and attended street fairs, all while in the company of white women. These women were actually having a great time with the dapper Manongs, but in the eyes of the white men, these little brown Filipinos were already taking jobs away from them, and now they were also taking away their women. If they couldn't send them back to the Philippines or stop them from immigrating to the US, they had to take legal action to further segregate them from the white communities of California. In many ways, racism in America was perpetuated by laws actually put in effect in past decades specifically to marginalize certain groups of people. For Filipinos in California, there was the amendment to the political code passed by the state legislature in 1921 allowing the legal establishment of separate schools for children of Chinese, Japanese, Indian, or Mongolian heritage, which Filipinos fell under. The Immigration Act of 1924 was passed to exclude Asians from the U.S., but Filipinos remained exempt from this as they were U.S. nationals, so more Filipinos were recruited to fill the void left by the excluded non-whites of Asian descent and to answer the continuously growing labor demand in America. Anti-miscegenation laws are pieces of legislation that enforce racial segregation by criminalizing interracial marriage and sometimes even just sex between members of different races. These kinds of laws already existed in California, prohibiting marriage between Mongolians and Caucasians, but it was made clear by the Attorney General in 1926 that a marriage license can't be issued to a Filipino and Caucasian couple since Filipinos were considered part of the Mongolian race. In 1929, the California State Legislature passed a resolution requesting the U.S. Congress to enact the restriction of Filipino immigration. The Northern California newspapers that earlier stoked the flames of hatred against Chinese and Japanese immigrants were now writing about the Filipinos being the state's next problem. This negative sentiment against Filipino Americans was further fueled when the California Department of Industrial Relations published a special bulletin titled Facts About Filipino Immigration into California that described the so-called third wave of Filipino immigration as happening too fast and having the wrong kind of Filipinos moving to the state. The U.S. economy started to plummet that same year, marking the beginning of what was to be the Great Depression of the 1930s. Unemployment was mounting and more and more white men were being laid off while the less demanding, more affordable, and more hardworking Manongs were being retained. Nativists who couldn't wait anymore for the immigration law to be enacted decided to take matters into their own hands. By this time, restaurants and other establishments had already been putting up door signs that prohibited the entry of Filipinos, with some of them even equating Filipinos to dogs. Manongs walking in the streets risked getting attacked by white men, especially if they were seen accompanied by white women. In October 1929, Filipinos in Exeter were shot with rubber bands as they made their way through a street carnival with their white female companions. Chief of Police C.E. Joyner led a mob of 300 white men in burning down the barn of a rancher who hired Filipino laborers, and Joyner also ordered the closure of a nearby labor camp. According to local news reports, this was the result of Filipinos insisting on equal treatment by white women. 
Two months later, on December 2, 1929, police raided a boarding house in the coastal city of Watsonville, and they found two white girls, aged 11 and 16, sleeping in the same room with 25-year-old Filipino lettuce grower Perfecto Bandalan. It later came out that Bandalan and the 16-year-old girl named Esther Schmink were actually engaged and that the 11-year-old girl was Esther's sister who had been left in their care at the request of the girl's mother. The white community, however, was still outraged at the interracial relationship. Watsonville is a city at the southern end of Santa Cruz County, around 153 kilometers or 95 miles south of San Francisco, California. It's located adjacent to the Pajaro River, across the small town of Pajaro in Monterey County, where in December 1929, Pajaro Justice of the Peace D.W. Rohrbach had declared Filipinos undesirable, unhealthy, and destructive to living wages. Rohrbach had also said in a statement published in the Salinas Index Journal that though he didn't advocate violence, he felt that the U.S. should give Filipinos their freedom and send them home so that the white people who inherited America could live in peace. Violence, however, was exactly what ensued when a new Filipino dance hall opened in January 1930 in the Palm Beach area of Watsonville. It was January 19th when an angry group of white vigilantes armed with pistols and clubs arrived outside the newly opened Filipino dance club. They were there to burn down the establishment and save the white women who voluntarily danced there for a living, but the club owners threatened to shoot at the rioters if they didn't leave them alone. The owners opened fire when the mob persisted, and this ignited an assault that would last five consecutive days. A mob of around 500 white men, young and old, roamed the streets of Watsonville in search of Filipinos, pulling them out of their homes and beating them on the streets. They demolished Filipino-owned businesses and fired guns at Filipino homes and passing cars with Filipino occupants. They even threw some of their victims over the Pajaro Bridge which connected Watsonville to the adjacent town of Pajaro, where many Filipino-Americans also lived. Watsonville police, led by Sheriff Nick Sinnott, rescued as many Filipinos as they could and guarded them in the city council's chamber, while Sheriff Carl Abbott of Monterey County tried to quell the unrest in Pajaro. The mob left Palm Beach and moved out through the Pajaro Valley to attack Filipino labor camps, and on January 22, several cars with white men arrived at the Murphy Ranch in San Juan Road around 8 kilometers or almost 4 miles east of Pajaro. With their revolvers and shotguns, they fired into a bunkhouse filled with sleeping Filipinos who immediately awoke and dropped to the floor or hid inside a narrow closet for protection. One of the Filipinos, unfortunately, a 22-year-old field worker named Fermin Tobera, received a fatal shot in the heart. Fermin's death was the tragic culmination of the Watsonville riots, but even though the violence subsided in the city, it continued in other parts of the U.S. where calls for an end to Filipino immigration further intensified. Filipino Americans, on the other hand, used these incidents to bolster claims for independence with Filipino regional and national organizations spreading the message that, quote, give the Philippine Islands their promised independence and we shall go home to prevent the occurrence of such events as these, end quote. In 1934, the federal government passed the Tidings-McDuffie Act, also known as the Philippine Commonwealth and Independence Act, which established the process for the Philippines to become an independent country after a 10-year transition period. 
The act reclassified all Filipinos as aliens, including those already living in the U.S., and it limited the immigration of Filipinos to only 50 persons per year. The following year, in 1935, the U.S. Congress passed the Filipino Repatriation Act, which encouraged Filipinos to return to the Philippines voluntarily. Many Filipinos fled the U.S., though some of those living in California still chose to stay and continue working there. Some of them remained to be marginalized workers, but they would later end up contributing greatly to the development of the agricultural labor movement. The Watsonville riots made international news, and according to reports, eight young men who were members of prominent families in the Pajaro Valley were arrested for Fermin Tobera's murder. They were tried in Pajaro Justice Rohrbach's court and found guilty by the Monterey Supreme Court, but though they were each sentenced to two years in prison, their sentences were quickly suspended. Seven other men were convicted of rioting, but only received either probation or 30 days in jail. Fermin Tobera was only 20 years old when he left the Philippines for greener pastures, and just two years later, he was on his way back to his home country, but only for his body to be buried. He was given a state funeral that was attended by thousands of Filipinos, and he became a symbol of American intolerance and the Filipinos' strong desire for American independence. His death was a result of governmental actions taken by the state of California through the various policies and laws it had enacted, and it took the state 81 years to issue an apology to Filipinos in the form of a state assembly resolution by Assemblyman Luis Alejo, the ACR 74 in 2011, where he summarized the long and documented history of Filipino Americans experiencing discrimination, prejudice, and animosity in California and the state policies and laws passed that further worsened their suffering. The discrimination and violence experienced by Fermin and all those other Filipino Americans in Watsonville unfortunately didn't end in that period of American history. Very recently, in the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic, Filipinos and other Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, or AAPIs, have been living through a very similar ordeal in the U.S partly due to deep-seated racism in the country, and partly blaming them, wrongly, for causing the coronavirus pandemic. On February 3, 2021, 61-year-old Noel Quintana was riding the L train in New York when a man walked by and kicked the tote bag Quintana had set on the floor. When the man was confronted by Quintana, he took out a box cutter and slashed Quintana across the face from cheek to cheek. None of the other passengers intervened, and Quintana only got help from a ticket booth attendant after getting off the train. Two weeks later, on February 16, 74-year-old Juanito Falcon was walking near the parking lot of a mall in Phoenix when he was punched in the face by a 40-year-old man named Marcus Williams. The blow was strong enough to make Falcon fall and hit his head on the pavement, fracturing his skull and causing bleeding on the brain. He was rushed into surgery, but he passed away two days later from his injuries. More than a month after that, on March 29, 65-year-old Vilma Cari was brutally assaulted in broad daylight outside a building in New York while she was on her way to church. Her attacker was a 38-year-old homeless man named Brandon Elliott, who was on parole after killing his own mother in 2002. The attack left Cari with a fractured pelvis, forehead contusions, and bruising all over her body. 
While it hasn't been determined as of this recording whether what happened to these Filipino Americans were hate crimes, the surge in hate incidents targeting AAPIs has certainly been alarming. The incidents not only comprised a physical assault, but included shunning or avoidance, being coughed or spat on, insults both online and in person, vandalism, and refusal of service or entry into an establishment. According to research, the recent racist backlash against AAPIs seemed to be linked to former U.S. President Donald Trump's tweet on March 16, 2020 that referred to COVID-19 as a Chinese virus. It was reminiscent of Pajaro Justice Rohrbach declaring Filipinos as undesirable and unhealthy. And if history is repeating itself once more, then we can only hope things don't escalate into a full-blown riot and that no more lives have to be taken like those of Fermin Tobera and Juanito Falcon. Thank you for listening to Stories After Dark, a Spotify exclusive powered by Anchor. Stay tuned next week for a new episode, and to make sure you're updated about the show, please follow Stories After Dark on your Spotify app as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by me, Derek. Music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. If you'd like to see the references used for this episode, suggest cases, send personal stories, or further support the show, you can go to storiesafterdark.ph for more information. All of the links are in the episode description. <laughs>